welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Thank you for being with us again today. Thank you for standing in the honor of the reading of God's Word. We come to a portion of the Christmas story in our Christmas series that involves the adoration of the angels over Christ and the adoration of the shepherds. And so with me, once again, will you hear the Word of God? Luke writes in Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is God's blessed and beautiful word and the Christ's blessed story. May God bless its truth to our hearts. Amen and amen. You can be seated. Well, this Christmas series we've entitled Emmanuel, which means God with us, and it is designed to cover the story of the arrival of Christ and his marvelous birth story. So far you've heard from from uh, myself and our pastoral staff as we've gone over the announcement of the arrival of Christ to Mary and her wonderful song of praise to God for that. And then Pastor Josh last week preached out of Matthew chapter 1 and talked about the actual arrival from the announcement to the arrival in Bethlehem, the, the marvelous birth experience. That's recounted again, by our way. By the way, not only in Matthew, but here in Luke chapter 2, there's another account, verses 1 to 7. I won't read it, but it talks about the census required by the emperor and, uh, and the governor of, of Syria and, and how all of this was perfectly planned by God and how by a decree of the Jewish leaders, we think, everybody in Israel had to go back to the town of their heritage. And so Joseph and Mary were divinely led to the town of Bethlehem. And Christ was given uh, to them in birth 
The town was filled with people there for the census. It was overfilled with people. They'd gotten there late because their journey had been the hardest with, with her just nine months pregnant and ready to deliver. And when they made it to the town of Bethlehem, there was no room anywhere in any house, in any inn, in any place. And so they found their way among the animals in a stable outside. And that's where Christ entered the world. Wrapped in swaddling cloths, he was lying in a manger, which is a feeding trough that they cleaned out by hand hastily and laid the Son of God to rest in in that feeding trough on his first day on planet Earth. Well, this day, it began with that birth, but the same day, the scripture says, in that same region, in the same night, there were shepherds keeping watch by night. And so it began with the announcement of the birth of Christ, the arrival of the birth of Christ. And then it continues with this incredible visitation of the angels to see the shepherds. But also it really ends on a note of adoration. Adoration is really the activity in this chapter. The angels come to adore Christ on earth. They bring the worship service of heaven to a humble hillside on earth, and they keep the praise service going that had already been going in heaven. Then the shepherds are filled with joy with this news, and they go and see the actual baby lying in a manger, and they know it's really true. And they leave, verse 20, where they returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And so this is a story of rejoicing and adoration. And that's why I call this next segment in our series, Emmanuel, God with us, the adoration of Jesus. Now, there's a, there's a theme that you see here, just in, by word of introduction before we get into the, the meat of the message. Luke loved in his gospel to describe how God often brought high truth to humble people. This was the policy of the Lord. If you were too proud to believe you needed to hear from God, guess what? Usually you didn't. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty five, and he praised the Father that he had hidden these great truths of, of the gospel from the wise, and he had revealed them instead to babes, to people who were humble, who were hungry, who were ready to listen. And that's true in this great story. You would have thought that the introduction of Jesus Christ to the nation of Israel and to the people of the world would have been delivered to some people with some greater star power and message reach who could take that message far and wide. You might have thought that Caesar Augustus, whom verse 1 tells us ruled the world at the time from his throne room in Rome, would have been the one to receive the message. It would have made messaging sense, but he didn't receive it. You would have thought perhaps that if the message was just going to go to Israel, that the temple would have been the place where the angels brought this great manifestation and this great declaration. They might have gone into what they call the palace of the stones in the temple, where the Sanhedrin would be meeting, the 70 rulers of Israel, kind of the senate of that state, along with the high priests, and suddenly appeared to them. That didn't happen. Why? Well, because they were uninterested in the arrival of a Messiah. They believed that their religious system would pretty much get them to heaven on their own. And they were wrapped up in themselves. They were, they were high in their own minds. They were not ready and expecting Jesus. That's why later when the wise men came some months later and asked where the king of the Jews was to be born, they actually told him the address, Bethlehem of Judea. 
Bethlehem of Judah, but none of them went to see and make sure and, and affirm that this Christ had been born. They were totally spiritually unconcerned. They weren't looking for Messiah. They didn't think they needed a savior. So God goes instead to a bunch of humble shepherds on a hillside. Now, would you understand this? If, if there was a totem pole outside Jerusalem with, with the highest people in the, in, the, in the society on the top and the lowest on the bottom, the chief priest would have been on the top, the high priest, and the shepherds would have formed the base of the totem pole. They were the lowest of the low. They were, they were unskilled. They were regarded as doing an unclean job, and they had to work 24-7. I mean, that's what it is, shepherding sheep, right? So they never had freedom to come to the synagogue to worship. Therefore, they were considered unclean religiously. So nobody wanted to have anything to do with them. They thought they were unclean, untrusted, and therefore unrespected. You wouldn't have come with any important message to a bunch of shepherds. But God brings high truth to humble people. And he did it that night. I wonder why. Well, I think they were humbled enough by hardship to be ready to hear. And as I begin this message, I don't know about you, but this has been a year of some unexpected hardship. And maybe you're humbled by hardship, emotionally, relationally, maybe economically. Well, the Lord's using that. I'll bet you're listening with ears like you haven't listened in any other Christmas. Maybe you're humbled by hardship to hear. God has a good message for you today. Listen with your whole heart. My message is structured around answering a question. That was the, the question occurred to me. If this is all about the shepherds learning to adore God, glorifying and praising him, verse 20, why did the shepherds praise him so much? Why did the shepherds go away rejoicing and praising God? I went back through the passage, and I'm going to walk you through it verse by verse, moment by moment. And I discovered, in my mind, five beautiful reasons why they went away rejoicing after that night. Here's the first. I think they went away rejoicing because they knew they'd been given the greatest news on earth. The greatest news on earth. This begins to be seen in verses 8 to 11. Now, the, the key truth that's communicated in terms of biblical truth in this whole story is in verses 10 to 11. The angel comes and he announces the greatest theological statement in history. He says, behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people unto you was born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Three mighty titles of Jesus. Dr. Alfred, the New Testament Greek scholar, says that this is the only time in the entire New Testament when all three of these titles are gathered in one place and one statement to one set of hearers. God bringing high truth to humble people. He brings it here. And this is, make no mistake, it's a beautiful human story about Joseph and Mary and a, and a challenging birth night and, and the, 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 the humble and adoring shepherds and all the rest. But the theology is center stage and it is the great introduction of the Son, the, the Savior of the world. But there is a human backstory around it. And let me, let me kind of go through the backstory as it's so beautifully recorded here. We know the birth had occurred that day, sometime in the previous 24 hours, because this, the, the angel says in verse 11, unto you is born this day the Savior. 
Verses 1 to 7 describe it. I won't read it. You know the story. I just rehearsed it for you as I began. So Jesus had been laid in that feeding trough in some stable in Bethlehem. After that moment, the angel arrives. Now, who does he arrive to? It says that there were shepherds keeping their watch over their sheep that night. Verse 8. Outside Jerusalem, near Bethlehem, on the fields of Bethlehem today, you can go and you can find the remains of the stone towers that the shepherds built to watch over their flocks by night. They're still there today. It's a beautiful thing to watch and visit. They would build towers. They would gather the sheep in a little low-walled enclosure. One of the shepherds would lie over the door using his body as a door so that no animal could come in or out with him fought without him fighting it. How wonderful that Jesus said, I am the door. No one comes in or out but through me. So there was this low-walled little sheepfold, and then there was a tower next to it so another shepherd could look out and watch over the flock for distant predators. That's what they were doing. There was a group of them. Suddenly, on just what had been any other night, watching over any other flock, verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Notice there's two angelic parts to this story. Most people and most of the songs about it talk only about the great multitude of angels in verse 13 appearing. But that's not the only angel that appeared. The more breathtaking moment to the, to the shepherds was all of a sudden an angel appeared before them. I think it was the angel Gabriel. I'm just Bible guessing. You can figure out who it is and correct me later. I think Gabriel had another assignment and he was there. The great birth he'd predicted to Mary and he told Joseph had now happened and he got in on the completion of his own story. He appears. The Greek tells us that he actually stood near them. So the angel wasn't hovering in the sky like we have these fantasy visions about. No, suddenly they're standing there with, with their shepherd's crook over their arm, kind of looking out over the sheepfold and shoom, the supernatural world opens and Gabriel in all of his glory stands just a few feet from them on the same piece of ground they were filled with fear and wouldn't you be when the supernatural world opens up and a breathtaking creature unlike you have ever seen or imagined stands suddenly in front of you you'd be filled with terror if the holy has ever brushed wings in your life through a miracle you know a little bit about what i'm talking about you suddenly know god is here the angel stands, and he then begins to declare them to them a great message. Notice not only does the angel stand there, but the text says the glory of God surrounded the angel. If the glory of the angel wasn't enough, suddenly the glory of God himself came down. Now that was amazing and unusual. The glory of God, God, God is spirit, but he manifests his glory in this astounding light. And that light had been with Israel in the past. That light had led them through the wilderness, a pillar of fire by night. It had come down to the tabernacle to show that God was there when they came to meet him, this blinding light. That was the glory of God himself. It had stayed in the temple when they came to worship him until they became so devoted to sin that God had to leave the temple. And Ezekiel tells us the story of the glory of God so lowly departing. And the glory of God had not been seen in Israel for 500 years. Suddenly, this night, 
a bunch of scruffy shepherds not only see a glorious angel a few feet from them on the same ground, but the glory of God shows up and shines all around them. Why did the glory of God reshow itself after 500 years? Because the, the Son of God had come to earth. He was just a few miles away in a feeding trough in Bethlehem, and God the Father wanted to say, the one whom I'm well pleased with has arrived. Listen up. Adore him as you adore me. What a moment. Now the glory of God overcomes them, and it may have even flattened them, because when the glory of God arrived, usually you didn't survive. But the glory of God was not coming to judge sin or to confront Israel. It was not coming to confront. He was coming to comfort. And he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. I'm not coming to confront you or to judge you. I'm bringing good news of great joy. Replace your fear with joy, dear men. Fear not. I bring you good news. What was the good news? A Savior is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. Again, Dr. Alfred said, only time you'll, you'll find those three great titles of Jesus in the same place to the same people. Oh, this high truth to humble people was beautiful. The word Savior there had only been applied up until this time in the Bible to God himself. And now they're saying God himself has come to earth and he's come in human form. The word Christ was familiar to them. Mashiach in the Hebrew, it meant anointed one. This was the Messiah, Hamashiach, the one they've been expecting to rescue Israel and to lead, lead Israel into an eternal relationship with God. He had come as well. And that identifies the humanity of Jesus, a Savior God who's come as a human Christ. And over it all, he is called the Lord if you were with me a few weeks ago in my midweek devotions, I studied that word with you, kurios in the Greek. It meant master and ruler of the universe. In the Greek Old Testament, it was used to describe the word or translate the word Yahweh, God in all of his majesty. And so all these words come together and the angel says, a mighty savior God has come, who is the Lord of the universe, who is Yahweh himself, kurios, the Lord, and he has come in a human form as the Christ that I promised and you have awaited. Oh, this was one of the mightiest moments in human history. And here these men receive this story. Now notice he says, this is good news for all the people. Haleas in Greek. It meant a people group. Now, who was he referring to? Specifically, he was saying all the people of Israel now have a chance to meet a savior for their sins. And many of them would when Jesus went a preaching and healing, and many would come to know him. But later on in the passage, seven days later, when Jesus was presented by Joseph and Mary in the temple in, in a dedication service, an old man named Simeon walked up to them, took the baby in his arms, and in Luke chapter 2, verse 30, he breaks out in a prophecy. And he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. I know that this is Christ as Savior and Lord. I've waited for him all my life, that this is the Savior and your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. That's plural, isn't it? So this great chapter says that the angel was bringing a gospel message that would be first for Israel, but then it would go all over the world, and it was made for all peoples. Verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. In this world today, it's pretty easy to sort out people. Did you know that? 
There are Jews and there are Gentiles. That's it. Pretty easy way to sort that box out. And God included every lost heart in this great story. He included your heart when a person brought the gospel into your life years ago or just weeks ago and you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You became somebody who fulfilled the prophecy of Luke 2.32. A light of revelation came on you, a lost Gentile, a non-believer, a non-Jew, and you saw the glory of Christ, and now you're his. Praise the Lord. That's why today we reach out all over the world, because the gospel the angel gave is for all the nations. That's why the Christmas boxes went out again this year, and they went out to lost and broken in lives into the hillsides of Haiti, where maybe no one has been able to bring the gospel to a small gathering of children. They heard it this year because this is for all the peoples. When different ones of our missionaries that we've so faithfully supported all, all year long, particularly this hard year, they've been faithfully supported by this church. When they go out, when Gene Arnold takes yet another young missionary pilot up into the sky over this city, and he trains that pilot to be able to go and take missionaries into a far part of the world where there are people yet who've not had the light of revelation, we're involved in that. We're carrying the gospel today. When the cops, having now planted churches throughout the highlands of Papua New Guinea, know that the leaders that they have trained lead yet another person in the hills of PNG to Jesus Christ, a light for revelation to the Gentiles has dawned again. This is the kingdom of God, my friend. And the kingdom of God is unstoppable. It's not impeded by human events, human realities, or anything. So the angel gave them the greatest news on earth, and they began to rejoice. Why else did they rejoice? Secondly, because they knew that they were being led in on the greatest event in history. Now to verses 11 and 12. The angel says, unto you is born this day in the city of David. So the angel emphasizes a particular day and a particular city. What was he saying? He was saying all the words of the prophets for thousands of years are coming true, and they have come true. This day, this day is a very special day. This day and this day alone was marked out by God in Ephesians chapter 1 before the foundation of the world as the day that Jesus Christ would be born on the planet. All of human history has been designed to rotate around this day. And the angel comes and says, this day has finally arrived, planned from eternity. Not only the day, but the place. Look at verse 11. Unto you is born this day. In the city of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior. You say, well, that's the way I've always heard it. God chose Bethlehem. Well, let me ask you, which Bethlehem? You're saying, Pastor, you're starting to confuse me. I thought there was only one Bethlehem. Well, that's not always the case with towns and cities. Did you know that? If I were to ask you to pull out a map of the United States and put your finger on Spokane, a city named Spokane, where would you put it? You say, that's no problem. In the Northwest, right around where we live, I'd pull that map out and I'd put my finger on Spokane, Washington. There's Spokane, you'd say, and you'd be partly right and partly wrong. Did you know that there are five cities named Spokane in the United States? Who knew? There's a Spokane, South Dakota, 
There's a Spokane, South Dakota. I don't know if Jarvis knows this or not, but there, there is one. There's a Spokane, Ohio. They're rooting for the Buckeyes. There's a Spokane, Missouri. And get this. I mean, Spokane, a kind of a Northwest Indian name, I, I think, found its way into a little town in Louisiana. That's right. There is a Spokane, Louisiana, where people are waking up today. It's in Concordia Parish, and the last census says the population is 442. <laughs> now, if I were to say to you all, this is all going to take place in Spokane, don't be so cocky as to know. Well, I know where that is. <laughs> Did you know when the angel said it was to take place in Bethlehem? It, it, there, it, well, you figured it out by now there was more than one Bethlehem. Did you know that? There were two Bethlehems in the, in the nation of Israel at the time. There was a Bethlehem of Galilee. It was up north, near where Joseph and Mary were when Mary became pregnant and where they were building their life together in Nazareth. That was only seven miles away from Nazareth. Wouldn't have been a lot easier to take a little seven-mile overnight trip to go and register for the census there. Oh, so much easier. But that wasn't the Bethlehem that God picked. There was a different Bethlehem. If you go back to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, the great prophecy about where the Savior would be born, God gets hyper-specific. Micah 5 verse 2, you'll hopefully see it on the screen. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ever wonder why that hugely difficult to pronounce Hebrew word is stuck there in the Bible? If you've ever had to do a Christmas reading in front of people, it's embarrassing because you can't get it right. I've worked on it all week. <laughs> oh, Bethlehem Ephrathah. What is that there for? Because Ephrathah meant fruitful, place of crops. The Bethlehem up in Galilee was barren. You couldn't grow anything but board up there. There was another Bethlehem 70 to 80 miles south in Judea that they called Bethlehem Ephrathah, Bethlehem the fruitful. Micah said, it won't be just any Bethlehem. God is choosing out a small little town, Bethlehem Ephrathah. You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You see, it's in the Judah region. For from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. God planned the arrival from ancient days, from eternity past. He chose the city that it did not exist, and he chose a specific place in, in the whole world for Jesus to arrive I just love how God's promises are specific and faithful and they're, they're absolutely fulfilled in the word of God and in history. Nobody would argue about where Jesus was, was born, enemy or friend. I wonder why that particular place was chosen. It's interesting. Bethlehem Ephrathah was just a few miles outside Jerusalem. You can walk to it from Jerusalem today. And there are walking tours that'll take you there. Now it's kind of joined almost as a suburb. It's that close. In the time, you went up and down hillsides to get to Bethlehem. And the hillsides were broad and they were perfect for breeding sheep. And the Hebrew Talmud and other Jewish authorities from the time say that all the sheep that were raised 
on the hillsides around Bethlehem Ephrathah had one purpose. They were all to be used as sacrificial animals in the temple for the sacrifices every day, all year long. What an amazing thought it could be that God sent the Lamb of God to be born in Bethlehem, surrounded by the sacrificial animals being raised on the hillside. The Talmud says that the high priest, when it came to Passover every year, would personally walk out to the fields of Bethlehem and he would choose the most perfect little lamb that he could find, flawless according to what the Old Testament required. He would wrap it in swaddling cloths. How fascinating. He would wrap it just like he would wrap a newborn human baby so nothing would damage it on the way back to, to Jerusalem. He would carry that little lamb in his arms and take it back into the temple in Jerusalem and they would guard it carefully until the few days that would pass for Passover and then that little lamb would have its blood shed for the sins of Israel born to you this day in the city of David oh they had a tingling sense that they were part of the greatest event in heavenly history third I think they went away rejoicing that night when it was all over because they knew that they had been part of the greatest decision in heaven. Back to Luke 2, now to verse 11. The Savior, the, the angel is standing there, overwhelming them in the glory of God, and he makes this great statement about Christ, verse 11. And then verse 12, he says, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. That comes to be important in a few minutes here. And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Who was that? Who were the heavenly hosts? The host met the brigades of heaven, the armies of heaven. That's common language in the Old Testament for the angels. They suddenly appear. Wow. A multitude of them. How much is a multitude? Almost beyond counting. In Revelation, it says that there are myriads and myriads of angels. Myriad is a translation of the Greek word murion, which was the highest counting number they had in their language. In other words, there is an almost endless number of angels that God has in his service throughout history. Now, it says they suddenly appeared. So Gabriel's backup band showed up. Boom. You got the glory of the angel standing. By the way, we always think that they're hovering in the sky. There's no evidence of that from this passage. Do you know that? Suddenly there was with the angel. Where was the angel? The Greek says he was standing there on the ground before them a few feet away. And suddenly right with him was a multitude more. Thousands and thousands of angels, I think, suddenly supernaturally materialized in the visible. And they covered the hillside as far as the eye could see and the ear could hear. And they were there for this magic moment and this overwhelming encounter because God said, my son is invading the planet. His glory has come enshrined in a human body. He is the God-man, and he's on his way to the cross for you. And all of my angels are celebrating. They were celebrating. Now notice in your Bible, it says they were saying. Pastors and I were talking about this this past week, and we were asking ourselves, can angels sing or can they just talk? You say, well, you guys have got time on your hands. Well, that's true. But we were going through this text and we're just kind of taking it apart. And you know, really, there's not much evidence that angels sing. In Revelation 5, when the whole church is singing a new song of salvation to God, it says the church sings, but the angels say. Here it doesn't say they're singing, it says they're saying. Why? My personal belief is that the angels 
don't sing a new song about salvation because they've never had to taste salvation. They have always been perfect. They've always been without sin. They did not fall. Therefore, they've never known the soul sickness that you and I have of being lost. And they've never tasted the wonder of the gospel breaking on their hearts like we did and suddenly feeling found. I think we sing. They've never tasted what we've tasted. That's why the Bible says that the word wonderful glories of salvation is something Peter says is something that angels long to look into. They long to experience it like we have. Just to pastor his hope and guess. A multitude suddenly appear on the hillsides and they're calling out glory to God. They must have accommodated themselves to the language of those shepherds, which was Hebrew or Aramaic. In the Hebrew, it would be kavod la Elohim, kavod la Elohim, glory to God. And they might have done it in antiphonal voice, going back and forth like a heavenly uh, group of praise artists. Glory to God in the highest, one side might have said. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased might have been the reply. And it went on and on in this thundering outburst of praise. Now it says, glory to God in the highest. What does that mean? It doesn't mean we're giving him the highest praise we can. That's what we think. No, they're saying, listen, we just came from heaven. We just came from the highest place. And this is the praise going on in the heavenly throne room right now on the birthday of Jesus Christ. And we're bringing the praise from the highest down to the humblest. We're bringing you heavenly praise. This is what all the other angels are saying right now before God the Father. Oh, glory to God. That's how the heavens, heavenly praise is going. And we're bringing you an earthly taste. What an honor. Now, why were they praising God with such loud voices? Why were thousands of them on the hillsides for that moment? Well, they may not have, had, have ever had the privilege of tasting salvation because they were never lost, but they have certainly known the salvation story. You see, angels were around a long time before we were, in my personal opinion. And they knew the whole story of salvation. They saw the fall of Satan. They saw the fall of Adam and Eve. And they knew and they listened as the Holy Trinity had planned a rescue mission for lost people. They knew and listened that it involved the beautiful Son of God, whom they regularly watched march through the throne room of heaven for eon after eon, would one day humble himself and become a man, and he would be incarnated. He would go through the biological miracle of the virgin birth, and he would find himself in all of his majesty lying in a swept-out feeding trough. They knew the whole story was coming, and they knew it had to be that way because that was the only way to provide salvation for this lost humanity. And they knew the baby had to come to grow up and face a cross. The cradle was tilted toward a cross, as I've told you year after year. And they knew that. And they knew that this was the greatest rescue mission in universal history. And they were anxious for it to get started. They knew that it would give their father glory and it would rescue you and I from sin. And so they were praising God that today, this day, is born in that city, the Son of God. And they were giving God the highest praise praising him. And they said, oh, now there's a chance for peace. Peace, not between nations. Peace, not in some emotional sense that you get when you read the right Christmas cards this year and you feel the spirit of the season. That's nonsense. We don't even know that Jesus was born in this season. He probably wasn't because the shepherds weren't out on the hillsides in December, January, and February. 
because it was cold and snowy in Israel in those months. Jesus must have been born anywhere from April into November. We don't know when. We don't even know the year. It was probably between 4 and 6 B.C. There's the, the Christmas idea is, is a human construction, but the arrival of Jesus is a divine construction, and they knew it was happening, and they gave God the glory, and they said, finally, there's a way for sinful men on earth to be at peace with God. Who is he at peace with? Those with whom he is pleased. Last part of verse 14. Now, I know Christmas stirs up our hearts and minds, and it's the end of our calendar year. And in this time, many of us turn our thoughts back over the year and over resolutions we made and over problems we had and over decisions we made that weren't good and over actions we took that weren't good. Maybe our family is damaged this year because of some bad things we've done in the past or whatever. This past year was a year that revealed to you how much of a sinner you are. And a lot of times people join church or they watch online in this season because they know that they're sinners. And they wonder if there's a God who will accept them. My dear friend, this is exactly the season for you. Because you know that you're not at peace with God right now, but you can be if you're a person with whom he's pleased. You say, that's the whole problem. I know I don't please God. Well, someone came to please him for you. That's the Lord Jesus Christ who left that cradle and went to that cross and took the wrath of God for you. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, became sin so that we who are sinners can become the righteousness of God in him. When God is pleased with you, it's not because you've gotten your act together. It's not because you're good enough to get into heaven with your reformed life. It's because you are in Jesus Christ. You trusted his payment for you. And now you're in his righteousness. And when God the Father looks at his son, what does he always say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's the message of that great morning and that great arrival. And the angels declared it. The angels were preaching the gospel. And the shepherds heard it, and they knew that they had been brought into the greatest decision in heaven. It was an eternal rescue mission. And it was rolling. Well, here's the fourth reason. Go on in the text. Now we get to some of the human dimension. The fourth reason they left praising God that night was because they had experienced the greatest treasure in a believer's heart. They, they saw how this impacted people. And they saw it in the eyes of Joseph and Mary. Verse 15, when the angels went away, I love that, that language, it's so understated. You got thousands of angels appearing on hillsides. Gabriel in front of them, overshadowed by the glory of God. And just as, as quickly as it arrived and your breath is taken and your heart's racing and you don't know what's going to happen next, then all of a sudden, and this is in my mind, shoo, they just completely disappeared. The supernatural went back to being invisible. And these guys are sitting there in a moment of truly stunned silence, blinking and breathing and looking at each other. But it didn't last long. Because, see, their hearts were prepared, and they were ready to believe. And when the angels went away from into the heaven, the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, the Greek says right away they started chattering. They didn't waste any time, and they kept telling each other, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Notice they didn't doubt it. They didn't wonder if all this had happened. They didn't wonder if they'd find a baby who was the son of God when they got there. They said, this has happened. Salvation has come to us and to the world because the Lord has made it known to us, and they got moving. Somebody asked me after the first service, what did they do? Well, they had to, have leave, had to leave somebody to watch the sheep. 
and the rest of the shepherds went to find the Son of God, wouldn't you have hated to be the guy that got the job of having to stay there and watch the sheep? Just a little trivia for you. They went with haste, those that could go. And indeed, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. What must that have search have been like? I mean, the, the, a feeding trough is only in a stable. So they didn't bother knocking on the doors in Bethlehem saying, hey, did anybody have a baby in your house tonight? They didn't go to the nice houses in town. They didn't go to the richest houses in town. They didn't go to any house in town. They didn't knock on the doors of the inns either because they knew those aren't stables. They just went to the stables outside in the, in the outdoors and they just kept looking into stable after stable and they would ask the stable keeper, hey, this is a weird question, but was there a baby born in your stable tonight? And they went stable to stable. A guy saying, are you crazy? Are you nuts? Next guy, are you out of your mind? Of course not. This is a stable. And then finally they got to the guy that said, funny, you should ask. <laughs> there was a little couple worn out and, and she, she was ready to give birth. And so they're in the far back behind the donkeys. I think that baby's in a feeding trough. I swept it out for him earlier tonight. And so the shepherds went into the back of that. You see, that's the humility of Jesus Christ for you. I mean, if Jesus Christ had been born in Spokane, this Spokane, the Spokane that was chosen by God last night, think about what the search would have been for him. If suddenly some of us had received a revelation from God with angels and with with the full multitude of of instruction and praise, and we have been asked to go find him, we would have not have gone and and, and called up the birthing center at Sacred Heart and say, I'm I'm looking for a baby with a certain name. We wouldn't have stopped by the birthing center at Deaconess and pushed the button and asked, hey, baby born tonight? We wouldn't have even gone to UGM to the Women's Center where somebody might have given birth late at night with all the nice medical equipment and the people that volunteer there. We wouldn't have gone there. Wouldn't have knocked on that door. Wouldn't have even gone to one of the warming shelters for the homeless because those have nice little beds and and, and it would have been a, a good experience. You know where we would have gone is right down Brown Avenue downtown to the overpass that you go through every single day when you're driving up Brown Avenue and you see the homeless lying on either side, that's where we would have had to go. And we would have found a huddled, homeless, cold, exhausted couple, and it wouldn't have surprised me if that newborn baby was lying in a borrowed blanket in a stolen shopping cart. See, that's this story. When was the last time you thanked God for the humiliation of his son for you? Well, they found the baby, and the sign the angel had given them was true. They would never find any other baby wrapped in swaddling cloth lying in a manger. So they knew this was the child. And immediately, verse uh, 17 says, And when they saw it, the baby lying in the manger, the sign was true. They made known the saying. Who'd they make it known to? Obviously, Mary and Joseph. And they said, you guys, we don't know you, but we've got to tell you what just happened. We, we were out on the hillsides and, and the angel himself came to us and a multitude of angels came to us and they told us that this night, this child is the born son of God, the savior of the world. We, we, we believe it, but we just can't imagine it. 
And they would have looked at Joseph, who was probably still awake. Mary, in her exhaustion, may have been lying to the side. And the baby in the manger with Joseph clumsily looking after it. Joseph would have been more wide-eyed than Mary. And Joseph would have heard this news. And they're standing there saying, I'm telling you, man, I know it's it's hard to believe. But Joseph Joseph will look back at him and say, actually, it's not hard to believe. And he would have told him his story of how nine months before he was visited by an angel. And he was told about this incredible miracle of the conception of Jesus in Mary. And he was told to protect her and honor her. And he was told that the Son of God was coming into his home. And Joseph would have said, Mary was visited too, and I was visited too. It would have been a marvelous moment. And Mary lying there, listening, perhaps exhausted, but taking it all in. It says here that she treasured up all these things. <laughs> of course she did. Because you see, this was a rolling miracle. This was an ongoing mystery to her. Only nine months before, she'd been a young girl engaged with nothing going on in her life. And then suddenly an angel had appeared in glory in her room. And her whole life had been denormalized and changed. And every day for those nine months, she'd been wondering, is this really true? Is this baby in my womb really him? And she went through the, the humiliating birth in a, in a stable, shame, feeling shame over herself for this is the way I've allowed the Son of God to come into the world if he's the Son of God. Isn't it wonderful of the Lord? to bring these shepherds with this encouraging affirmation into her greatest moment. Their words she treasured up in her heart, and she may have been telling herself, it really is true. I'm not alone in this, and the miracle's just beginning. She treasured it. It was an in-person confirmation. That's how I look at this. It was God's way of saying to Mary, see, I really am with you. That's why I said, Emmanuel, God with you, is yours. Oh, man. You know, this season, a lot of people are struggling with being alone. Maybe that's you. Struggling with separation from loved ones, struggling with Emotions that have been stirred by this year that you really can't even share. A depression, perhaps. And you wonder about the will of God for your life. What's God doing through it all? You're a believer. My friend, I can tell you this. When you need it, God knows how to send affirmation and encouragement to you. Watch for him to do it. He may do it by his spirit through his word. That's usually how it happens. Look for him to come and let you know you're not alone. Or maybe he might even do it through a person who's got a message for you from him. Well, quickly to the last. Verse 20 says, And the shepherds returned. Where? Back to their field. Back to their life. But they were different people. They went back to their old life, but they had a new story. They went back rejoicing, glorifying, and praising God for all they had heard and seen. They went back to their old lives, but they had a new story. And that's just the way it is for anyone who has truly seen Jesus. Hope that's your life today. 
Do you know what a privilege it is to have really met Jesus Christ, to have seen the greatness of his mission, and to know it's all true? Oh, my goodness. Well, for the shepherds, their, their role was complete. You never see them show up in Scripture again, although I wonder if some of these guys, if they'd lived long enough, 30-some years later, might have been on the outskirts of the places where Jesus was preaching in Judea. It might have been there on the day of Pentecost after the resurrection and come to believe in Yeshua, Hamashiach, the Messiah. It was complete for them, but for Mary, her role was just beginning. And with this, I close. That night, it was going over and through her heart, what would it be like to be the mother of the Son of the Most High God? Would she be up to it? What would it be like? She knew that in a few weeks she'd be caring for him after she was recovered from the birth. and It wouldn't be too long before she and Joseph were sitting there in the, in the, the kitchen seeing if the Son of God could learn to toddle and come to her outstretched arms. After that, she'd teach the Master himself the letters of the Hebrew alphabet that formed the very scripture he'd already written. She would teach him all the great truths of the Old Testament (laughs) that he'd already authored. But he grew through that in his humiliation and his humanity. So he would toddle after her, but soon enough as he grew into manhood, she would follow after him. Overcoming some initial misgivings, she would realize he's living out his calling and he's preaching about his cross and he really is the Savior. And we know that because she ended up at the foot of the cross, John says. He would toddle after her in the early years. Soon enough, she'd follow after him in the later years, and she would believe and be redeemed on the final day. Because you see, Jesus died for Mary too. You ever think about that? All the, the wonder of the little baby she held in her arms that dark morning. Those arms would be outstretched on a cross for her. And she stood at the cross and realized that the baby boy she had delivered on that first Christmas was now on a cross delivering her. That's the majesty of all this, folks. That's the wonder of it and the goodness of it. He's your Savior. Have you met him? Maybe you're saying, oh, I'm too deep a sinner. I'm farther away from God than I've ever been in my lost life. You can't be too deep a sinner for the depth of his sacrifice. You just can't. Did you know you can never out-sin grace? John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, the greatest Christian hymn. But before that, he'd lived decades of the deepest color of sin you can imagine. It never fully left his life. He battled with the memories of it all of his life. He later became a well-respected preacher, preaching in the poorest parts of London. He had a little church. He specialized in bringing sailors from the sea who had sinned greatly like he did. And he led them to Jesus, and then he preached over them. Became well-known because of his writing and his hymns. And one day somebody came to him and said, Pastor Newton, 
What would you like to be said of you because of all your great achievements for Christ? He said, I haven't done anything for Christ. He's done everything for me. If you want to tell my life story, here it is. All I know is that I'm a great sinner and Jesus is a great Savior. And that's the story of Christmas. 